All right. Good morning. Go ahead and take a seat. It's wonderful to be together this morning. Um, you know, Mark and Summer and, and all the staff have put together the series, and Luke, and uh, Mark has strategically scheduled <clears throat> me to speak any of the passages that he doesn't want to take on. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, sweetheart. I mean, really. Um, this, you know, because there are passages... You, you ever, Let's be honest about the Bible. The book is really real. It tells real stories about real life, and it exposes us for who we really are at, at the core. And if, if, you, if you really read the Scripture seriously, there are texts that come along, sometimes like the one today, that are penetrating and convicting and difficult. And as you're reading them, they motivate you to want to go, where's that Harry Potter book that I always wanted to read again? You know? Because they, they're so challenging. And one of those is today, and, and it addresses this proclivity we have to live our lives in comparison to other people. And the optics of the world around us tend to dictate to us, rather than us having an inner sense of who we are and God's calling on our lives being in that sense, we receive these external signals that are really powerful to us. And, and they're important. Like, it, it, we've, we grew up learning to copy each other. I mean, basically, what do, we, what do we do when we raise children, right? You've got these little dweebs, and for a while, they're just self-contained, and they're fine. And then they start eating real food, and then they walk, ah! You know, and, and, and during that time, they're, they're learning to copy you, good, bad, or otherwise, right? So, so we've lived on that. At the best possible level, that copying what we see in other people and the external optics of the world um, can be chalked up as role modeling, right? And role modeling's a good thing to that extent. But in another more troubling way, especially in Western civilization, we're really captured by the sexy optics of people who are beautiful and people who are powerful and dynamic and talented and bold and rich and on brash and on and on and on. And the optics around us we find are really powerful. And we don't realize it, but we take a lot of these in and then begin to copy those optics. We, we become attracted to things that aren't always um, the image of life that God intends for us uh, to live into. I grew up salmon fishing. My, my dad and I used to love to fish, and we fished every week. Little Randy, who can now sleep till noon on any given day, would be up at 4.30 in the morning, shaking my dad out on our beach, because, Dad, the tide's changing. we got to go fishing, you know, 4, 4.30 in the morning. And my poor dad would say, yeah, let's go. And we'd go out and fish. And during a good part of the season in the Puget Sound, you do really well by fishing with herring and candlefish and little squid and stuff that look like the food that the salmon eat most of the year until they migrate back to the places they're birthed to spawn on whatever cycle that salmon would be, three, four, five, seven years. And when they turn around and get headed back to the, to the stream that they were born in to spawn, salmon change. They quit eating food. It's no longer important for them to eat. Their, their, their life is coming to an end, and their life ends with their reproductive cycle, right? And, and so these salmon begin to swim toward the fresh water, and the more and more they get the sense of the fresh water and pick up the signals that draw them back to the very stream they were born in. If you don't believe in God and miracles, you've got to see this feat of nature that these salmon range all over the ocean and then come right back to where they were born. Anyway, when they're in that final cycle, 
coming in to, to spawn, they no longer eat, their noses crook over, but you can still catch them. We switched from herring and candlefish to shiny lures. Like for the humpback or the pink salmon in Puget Sound here, you use a pink lure, a hot pink lure, they just can't help it. It, it sees, they see it in the water, they're not eating, it agitates them, it hacks them off, and they attack the pink object, the shiny object, and you've got salmon for dinner. And so these shiny objects grab the fish and they strike at them instinctively without knowing what's going on. And in some ways, that's how we are with the optics in our, in our culture. There are things that we're not, we don't realize we're programmed to see. We see them and we just snap at them and we catch on and they dramatically affect how we live and operate. And Jesus talks about the unreliability of optics as we know them in our text today. And uh, we have a fairly long, long section here in Luke 12. And I'm just going to hit the first part of it. Because if you do the whole chapter like it's laid out, it's, it's really about three or four different messages. And I got confused trying to write that, right? So when, when in desperate, just cut the range of verses down smaller and smaller until you can make sense of it. So um, I'm going to be reading the first seven or eight verses of... Uh, Luke 12 here, and I want you to follow along and kind of brace yourself, because this is one of these sermons that's going to A, trouble us, and you got to get bugged before you can be comforted, okay? So this is the text that's going to make us uncomfortable in, our, in, our, in the way we feel this morning, but it will infinitely comfort us in the long run. And here's how it goes. A crowd of many thousands gathered. They were trampling on one another, and Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, And he said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what's been whispered in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can't do any more. But... I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the body's been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are precious to you. Thank you that we're precious enough to you, that you have a design for our lives that works, and you know it doesn't work. And you, in your word, offer us your wisdom, uh, your direction. And I pray this morning you'd give us ears to hear, and you'd give me words to describe what's in your mind for us today. Words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart, Lord, let them be acceptable in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this couple is in the car. They're driving down the southwest part of the United States. They're on a trip. They're coming into a town where they have a motel reservation. And they're driving along the strip toward the motel, and they need some food. They see one of these, like, Popeye's uh, fried chicken stands and uh, stores, franchises. And they they pull in, and they, they order up dinner, chicken, biscuits, the whole thing, sodas, Mountain Dews, probably down that part of the country. And... um. 
and they take it and they get in their car and they start off toward their hotel. And then, I don't know if you ever do this, I'm not, I hope I don't get in trouble with Nancy for this, but Nancy will do this. If you, if you have takeout food and you get it and you're going to take it home and eat it, there's always that moment where you've got to kind of look at it and sniff it on the way home, kind of get ready for it, you know, and you look in the bag. So they do the bag check on the way to the hotel, and what they realize is they've been handed the wrong bag. So instead of a bag of chicken and biscuits, they have the entire cash receipts from the store for the day. Some stores do that, you know, like McDonald's and stuff. They'll, they'll put the cash so the cash isn't around to be robbed. They'll put it in the, a bag from the store and load the bag up because at the end of the day, anybody that works that has the deposit walks out and it just looks like I got a bag of takeout food with them so you don't get robbed or anything. And this was a, this is a common practice in stores. And uh, I worked at Sears. We did that with cash. So anyway, they got the bag of cash with no chicken. So the guy gets on his cell phone, calls back to the place, and announces, uh, I think there's been a mistake. I have this huge bag of cash, but no chicken, and we want to return it. And the manager says, oh, God bless you. Thank you. That's so, what a moral example that is. I mean, you could have just run away with all of our money. I can't believe that. Thank you. Thank you. And the guy and woman pull back into this drive-in or, or, or this franchise they get their bag and go in, and, and they're greeted by a news truck and a radio station. And the manager is so impressed with this act of good citizenship that he's called in the media. This is the kind of feel-good story that ought to be on the news tonight, right? And so they arrive with a bag of money, and the, they get in there, and they say, well, the media here wants to talk to you and do a story. And they go, oh, no, it's just... Anybody would do this. Don't make a big deal out of this. Don't, don't, don't make a story out of this. No, no, we want to have you interviewed. This guy's waiting, and this person over here is from the newspaper, and they're, they're waiting for you. Give them an interview. This, the guy said, no, I don't really want to do an interview. Finally, in desperation, the guy of this couple grabs the manager of the store and says, is there a back way out of here? I need to leave. I can't face the media. You see... I'm not married to her, and she's not married to me. We have other spouses. Hmm. Optics. Good Samaritan, rotten scoundrel, both. <laughs> in, this, in the same uniform, right? Okay. So there, the thing I think that I get out of the story that Jesus is telling and out of this example of these people seeking chicken, there, there's, there's no way to hide something that actually happened. There, there is no such thing as secret. There's just not yet revealed, period. And oftentimes, things that look noble to us could have a shady side. And we wind up admiring nobility when there's a lot of ignobility behind it. We live in a pretty confusing world. How, what about this? Like, a couple of weeks ago, I'm watching this game. I, I believe it's American. What, what's the one where the men don the plastic hats and they have this round? Football. Yeah, football game called, called the Bowl. The Bowl. Super Bowl. Yeah. So the Super Bowl is happening, and the New England Patriots are playing for like the 19th time out of 20 years. Yeah, we should have run on third and one. Never mind. Um, and and, and they're, they're, they're out, for, out for the big win. And they keep flashing up to the owner's box. And here's this handsome, almost 80-year-old man who still has all his hair. I hate anybody 80 who's still got all their hair. Anyway, his name's Robert Kraft. And he was 
the Distinguished um, Jewish Citizen of the Year. And he uh, had, a, had a young player on his team named Julian Edelman, also of the Jewish faith, that he got this award for, and it was so honoring that this great example of the Jewish community, Robert Kraft, sponsored him. And, and the optics were, this is the perfect, kind, philanthropic human being. And then the story breaks a week or so ago that, that this same man was carrying on um, relationships with women who were sex slaves. And your, your heart just breaks. I, I'm listening to the announcer on the Super Bowl, and I'm reading the paper, and our hearts just break. I, I think I set too high expectations for Robert Kraft and people like that, and then when they come in for a landing, it's pretty disappointing. And, and so we get these, we've got a lot of stories of this stuff going on. Mark and I were talking about this week saying, well, Randy, there's only about 50 examples of this one. What are you going to use? You know, like the, the, the bad examples right now are abundant. And I, I want to I get to the point here of Jesus' teaching because I, I think there's some important things here. Three things that are important that I see in this story and the, in this teaching of these little eight verses. And the interesting thing is the first two lessons are kind of gruesome. And they're very convicting. The third lesson is healing. And I, and I, and I love the way that that rhythm of the gospel happens, that, that the good news comes to us on the back end of the bad news. We seem to always get the bad news about our insufficiencies, our shortcomings, and what we lack. And then at the end, the good news comes in. And the good news is so much better than the bad news that we forget the bad news and love the good news. So I hope that's what you'll do with this. But the bad news first. There's some lessons here. First, sin and evil are a, reval- are, are a reality. And Jesus refers to them in this, and, and I think reminds us in this text, this story, that all of us have these sinful shortcomings. And also that we ought to look at what's going on around us. And he refers to the yeast of the Pharisees. And think about this. When, when he says the yeast of the Pharisees, he's going... The yeast of the Pharisees, beware, by the way, and that is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is doing or presenting one side and having another side that's more powerful. And yeast is the active ingredient in bread, as I understand it, right? Like if you take yeast out of baking bread, don't you get like a blob or something? I don't know what you get. Um, Huh? Ah, you get a giant cracker. There you go. Okay. Ah, Polly. Um, Anyway, so why did I do that? This is... This is why you guys just had a retirement party for me, you know, okay? Um, But (laughs) I can't even believe, okay, but the yeast of the Pharisees, the active ingredient of their whole shtick is hypocrisy. Be anything you want at the core, just as long as you can pull off making it look good on the outside. Do, do, jump at all the negative shiny objects, but but make sure that what you present looks really good. John the Baptist told people, the, the Pharisees at one point, about the, he said, you're whitewashed sepulchers. So it's a beautiful little grave box with a dead body in it, but you take the top off and everything is, is um, decayed and rotten. And, and so the point in here is the yeast of the Pharisees, the active ingredient of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And, and Jesus um, says that this giving off one look and being another thing inside is objectionable. This is what the gospel frees us from. It frees us from pretense. It frees us to take those things that we've been hiding in our lives, 
put them out in public and begin to deal with them. I think it was Mortimer Adler or somebody said, observe behavior changes. One of the greatest gifts we give ourselves and each other is when we spot the secret thing in ourselves and we go to a friend, um, Don and I have been friends for years, different people in your friends, go to a friend and say, this is going to be hard for you to listen to and it makes me a creep, but here's, here's a secret thing in my life, here's a thing I struggle with, and I need to get free of that. And the first step toward freedom in that is not to hide it more deeply, but to disclose it and, and get it out, okay? And so the bottom line to this is who we really are is what we do when nobody's watching. And Jesus deeply desires to create in us lives where what we do when people are watching and what we do when people are not watching are the same thing. That's what integrity is, is to have all the pieces match up. And it's a very high demand. You know, and we laugh at that story about the people who are returning the money and stuff because it's a real zinger. But there's parts of all of our lives like that where we're, where we're faking it on the surface, but we're, we're dealing with really deep issues that, that we're hiding and, and not getting help on. So then there's a second lesson in here that comes up, and that is that everything that was concealed will be revealed. And how, how many public figures, how many politicians have we seen taken down when the real truth about them comes out? It, it's, it's rampant, right? And that's why nobody should ever run for public office. You know, that's, it's like you're going to get nailed. You know, there's, somebody's going to find something that embarrasses you. But everything that's concealed is revealed, and we ought to assume that, especially in this day and age of social media and Instagram and stuff and CCTV cameras everywhere. Everything that is concealed is revealed. You can't unmake something happen that's happened in the past. So this passage is really, a, really a strong message to us to consider the things that we hide within us. And uh, Jesus used a couple examples here. He says, you know, if it looks like you can cover it up in the dark, remember morning's coming. When the daylight dawns, what's going on is going to be much more evident. And then he says, the little things that are done in the back room in secret and whispers um, through the cracks in the fence are going to be broadcast from the rooftops. So Jesus is really big about this, this idea of not having anything to hide. Assume that every thought, word, and deed in your life can and will be made public. And, man, the call to purity and stuff begins to make sense. Because all purity is being what we aspire to be. Being who we are in truth. Now, there's a lesson three. And where I read read this, I'm easily convicted by texts about sin because I'm pretty convinced that the reason I'm a pastor is I'm the best sinner in the house, right? And so I, I, I'm good at instructing other sinners because I'm so good at it myself. Um, and I read a text like this one today, and I get down to, and I use my language, and it's a holy crap. You know, what am I, what am I going to do now? If I can't trust what I see in others, and I, I can't trust my own self, I'm a mess. Is there, is there any hope for me in this? Martin Luther used to talk about the gospel this way, that when the gospel comes first to us, it comes as a law, and it comes like a gigantic rock, and it just crushes us to powder. And then from the ruins of that (laughs) being crushed, we go, I am now convinced that I need a Savior. Help. I can't do this on my own. Help. I need God. Help. Jesus, rescue me. And 
you know what? The truth is we're a mess. We shouldn't be shocked like, by people like Robert Kraft and the things that come up. But the truth is, as much as we're a mess, there's hope for us because Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth. His truth reveals us for the frauds, for the insufficiency that we are. His grace says, that's what I like about you. I'm going to, just a quick story here, because I know we have time. Um, I was in a job situation at one point, and a job that I had been very successful at, and very happy with, and people were very happy with me, suddenly began to become, for me, horrible situation. And the person that was supervising me was uh, not affirming. <laughs> I'm being really nice here. He was, was not affirming and, and was critical and made these accusations with like finger points and stuff like that. And I was so rattled by it that I wound up calling my person who had been my boss in that same place before. I got him on the phone. I said, I, I feel so terrible. What am I, what am I doing wrong? And, and person who had been my supervisor said, tell me what he told you. And I repeated it back on the phone. And he says, Randy? I said, yeah. And he goes, I said, yeah. And he goes, everything he told you is true. I, I was crushed. I was heartbroken. I felt like a loser. And I'm looking for hope and help. And I call this guy that I look up to as much as anybody in the world. And I tell him the story. And he goes, yep, everything he's telling you is true. And I didn't think I could get any lower, but I dropped another like 1,000 feet in emotional altitude. And after a pause, he says, and those are all the things that I love and appreciate in you. And I just melted. And I thought, oh, I may not be able to be who I am here in this situation anymore, but who I am here is embraced by somebody else, and there's, there's a chance to to make it. There's a chance to succeed and do well in something else somewhere else. And I think this is the, the beauty of, of the gospel, is God reveals us for who we are and says, yeah, that's true about you. And, not but, and I love you and have always loved you and I'll never love you any more or any less. And in fact, I died to rescue you from your mess. And you're all the dearer to me now that you come to me admitting you're a mess. If a pigeon's worth two cents, you're worth my son on a cross. How's that for a comparative price? Isn't that something? And God says, regardless of who you are, I'll love you. And I have a story about this because I, I like practical examples. I met a guy in college. I helped him. Jonathan was his name. I helped him move into his dorm room as a freshman, and we became best friends. Years down the road, uh, Jonathan and I worked in Young Life together, and then Jonathan stood with me as the best man in my wedding when I married the greatest thing that's ever happened to me and the worst thing that's ever happened to her, Nancy over there. And uh, he was my best man, best friend, clinical psychologist with a doctorate, and... Uh, working in a prominent position here. And about two years ago, I woke up to the, a news report forwarded to me that my best friend had been arrested by Homeland Security for, uh, he was busted in a sex sting ring 
and he thought he was soliciting a 12-year-old girl. This is my best friend, my role model, my buddy, trusted friend, person that I thought had been honest and vulnerable with me. And he's all of a sudden in a federal penitentiary, and he gets six and a half years in prison. And my friend Jonathan's in prison at Lompoc, California. We write back and forth. We call back and forth. Got a wonderful letter from him this last week responding to my... uh, I, I write theological excursus to him to read, and then he responds to them. And I wrote him, wrote to him about self-forgiveness, and he wrote back to that. But I'm going to tell you guys something. My best friend is a criminal. When he gets out of prison in four more years, he's going to be a registered sex offender. He's still my best friend. I love him. I can hardly wait for him to get out of prison so we can go to lunch together and spend time together. I believe he's gotten his chain pulled, and he realized what he's done wrong. He deserves every minute that he's going to spend in jail. He did a horrible thing, an inexcusable thing, a criminal thing. But I love him, and he's my best friend. And he will be when he comes out of prison. And my family will embrace him, because they've already said so. That's not really big love. That's just loving a friend you've walked with for years. God's love for us is even greater than that. No matter how messed up we are, God is there for us. So read these texts. Think about what the things that you try to hide do to you and do to others and do to God's world. At the same time, think about how precious you are to God and how desperately much he wants to draw close to you He wants to hear those secrets. He wants to help you bring those things into the light and work through them. And that's the good news. So as you come to the table today, the Lord's table, I'm not going to do a trip on you like, oh, come up here, repent of all the evil that's in you. You know that you're a bunch of rats. I know that I'm a rat, right? Come to this table with a grateful heart. Come to this table seeking the good news in this story this morning. The news that says, Lord, I can't believe you embraced me regardless of who I am. But here I am. Take all who I am, even my junk. So give yourself to the Lord this morning as you receive him giving himself to you on the cross. Because that's what you're worth. You're worth the bread and the cup you receive. You're worth the grace that you're receiving this morning from Jesus. You're worth God's hugs. So come and receive those hugs this morning as healing for the parts of you that are broken.